Business Today, where we feature prominent local and national family business owners. We also talk to top family business experts to discuss relevant topics including communications, business culture, family relationships, succession and estate planning, values, as well as conflict resolution. Brought to you by the Tennessee Center for Family Business, I'm your host, Greg Lewis. Our guest today is Dana Holmes, the managing member of Second Generation Capital in Nashville, Tennessee, since 2006. Well, hello, Dana. Welcome to Family Business Today. We are so glad that you could join us. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Hey, you're welcome. Well, hey, first of all, uh, tell us a little bit about Second Generation Capital. What, what, do, you, what do you guys do? Um, Second Generation is a boutique firm, uh, three active partners in, in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, we're affiliated with a local accounting firm, Craft CPAs. Um, they own a minority interest in us. And we act as an investment banking firm. Um, we provide a lot of advisory services, ranging from valuations to exit planning to strategic planning. Um, but as a as a broker dealer and investment banker, we also do private placements and help um, firms with mergers and acquisitions. Where our focus is on uh, privately held businesses. Um, and uh, over the years, I've probably been part of uh, 80 M&A deals um, for half a billion dollars and probably done another 200 projects for clients um, across the United States. Okay. Well, thank you. For, thank you for sharing that, Dana. So, so you know a, a lot about uh, fam- family businesses and the things that they're dealing with. So uh, I'd like for us for this uh, time we have together to talk a little bit about the issues related to transferring control of the family business from one generation to another. Uh, so let's, let's start off with this. So let, let's say um, um, I'm a parent uh, who is considering transitioning out of the family business. Um, and there can be really a lot of stress on us uh, as as the founders in many cases, and also on the business. And so, um, uh, to make sure that that successfully transition occurs, what are some of the items the founding generation should consider before starting the transition process? Well, I, I think the a couple of things are are probably the first questions you have to ask. Um, you know, one of those is, is the next generation really ready for a transfer? Um, have you trained them and developed their skills for management roles in your company? Um, because one of the things we try to tell uh, all of our clients in, in, in a transfer situation is it's, it's really important to know that you're transferring skills, not just equity. Um, okay. Then another key question is, 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 all of the next generation included in the transaction uh, or the plan. Um, another one is, you know, really, really important is understanding what the expected role is for the founding generation. Um, do they plan to stay around? Do they plan to go to the beach um, and, and live in a beach house? Um, you know, because that, what, what we see that causes more trouble than, than most things is not only how do you affect the transaction, but how do you affect the change of control and, and management decision-making? Sure. Well, I, I hear that quite often 
uh, about the founding uh, founder, founding generation, transitioning uh, control and uh, to the next generation, and this whole idea of what. Uh, but they still want to stay involved in the in the business, uh, um, and so the next generation is dealing with the challenge of is well, I've, I've, I'm now taking control and taking on financial risk and other responsibilities, but but mom or dad are still still here. Um, so tell a little bit more about so what are what are some specific options uh, that that a founder uh, whether whether it's a mom or a dad could stay involved in the business but really transition uh, that leadership uh, growth role uh, to that next to, to their children well again if if we're talking about how they should approach planning for a transition um, then you know there are a variety of things that that I've seen work um, people start to create a family meeting and treat it like a board of directors and and so as members of the you know junior members of the family get involved in the decision making by being part of that decision making process um and and that that helps them build confidence it helps the employees build confidence in them um and it allows the the parent generation mom or dad that that is usually a founder in the business um, to to um, advise on the decision process and learn how to include the next generation in that process. Too many times, the the dynamic founder um, runs everything, you know, holds everything close to the vest and makes mm-hmm. all the decisions, right? And then expects to hand it off. And and the problem is not only in the family. But it's really important for the employees because a lot of times they're key employees that have counted on mom or dad for years. And now all of a sudden they're being asked to report to junior. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 so the those people have to be involved in the planning process and have a clear understanding of what the succession plan looks like as well, I think. Okay. Um, and and so but the 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 family meeting the the quasi board structure um is very important the other thing is once you get used to that it helps after a transition because it allows the parents to still be there as advisors in that decision making process and it also provides a um a structure whereby non active members of the family don't feel left out. They can participate and understand what's happening in the business. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so Dan, um, so this this transition uh, process. So, if the founder uh, uh, walks in to the office today and says, "I've had enough. Uh, I'm ready to transition uh, to to you, son or, or daughter or what whatever uh, that." Obviously, is is not the best way to do that. But what what's what kind of if I say I want to transition the business, is it a one year process in getting ready to two years, three years? Sort of. What would your recommendation be to to a family uh, business owner who may be thinking about that? How long should that that process take to get ready to uh, uh, transition? If the if the um, next generation 
is intimately involved in the business and has spent uh, has been involved in a management role, then it can be as short as a year to build the transfer structure to figure out financing and things like that. Mm-hmm. But but my belief is in most cases the successful succession takes three to five years to, to pull off. Okay. So because you... because of the training and all that, that ought to be involved. Okay. And it so uh, it's yes, so it's so three to five years, and so it's uh, it's much more than just about financial. There, uh, you you mentioned there as far as skills are concerned, or, or, or whatever. So that's very important in that in that transition uh, process. So how do you know uh, when the the children are ready? Um, well, that's a that's an interesting one. I, I think when. When you realize that they're involved in decision-making, they have employees that trust them, um, you know, if, if a son or daughter is, is taking an active role in running a portion of the business mm-hmm. um, and the people in that portion of the business don't keep coming back to the founder for his opinion, um, then you know that the, that the, the son or daughter has earned their respect and um, – you know, is operating autonomously. Mm-hmm. The The other important measure usually is how involved is the the younger generation with key suppliers, vendors, and customers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, frequently um, one of the biggest risks in a, transa- a transition is that all the customers are used to dealing with dad um, or all the vendors are used to dealing with mom. Mm-hmm. And um, and and so you need to involve the younger generation in those relationships. And when they're able to carry those relationships, when they're able to bid a project or sell a deal on their own, um, then, you know, you're you're getting close. OK. OK. Very good. Thank you. So so uh, the transition has been successful, but uh, the the founder wants still wants to play some kind of ongoing role in the business, although he's transitioned, the, the equity financial process has all been put into place. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, can the founder uh, still play an ongoing role? And in most instances, what would that look like? Um, well, it, it, again, it comes back to a shared view um, mm-hmm. on on what the change of control was about. Um, you know, it, it, there, there, a lot of times a company has got habits built into it. Um, we've always done things this way. Right. And if the owner, the, the founding generation is prepared to let the business change, um, then the, the younger generation can make it more their own. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that requires, um, uh, you know, a, a good shared perspective about what the business needs. Um, there's a lot of conflict probably inherent in that. And mm-hmm. so a lot mm-hmm. of times to create family harmony, um, people don't talk about those conflicts until after the control is passed. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, I go back to the concept of the board or the family meeting or whatever 
Um, in my ca- in in my experience, the best transitions occur when if dad wants to stay involved, you're very clear about what it is he's going to do. Is he going to sell and be a commission salesperson? Is he going to be chairman of the board and run those board meetings but not have operational responsibility? Um, you know, and and those things have to be discussed. Mm-hmm. There need to be some expected work rules. <clears throat> Nothing is more discouraging to employees than to have the founder who used to work 60 hours a week now show up, not really understand what's going on because they hadn't been there in three weeks and still think they can walk in and give orders. Mm-hmm. So so I suppose one of the uh, things is, though, that's really a part of whatever kind of uh, agreement, a written agreement that really comes, comes through this whole tr- transition plan. It's not just a verbal agreement. Uh, 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 Plan. There's written uh, a plan as far as who's who's going to be leading, uh, what's the founder's responsibility is going to do, and who's who's the boss. I suppose. Uh, what do I say? Uh, right. In that? Mm-hmm. I think I think the the <clears throat> the written approach is very helpful because you have to negotiate the terms, mm-hmm. and and that helps make the understanding be more clear. Um, the other thing that I've found that's really helpful if there are agreements like that mm-hmm. is the the other family members. One of the biggest problems in a family transition is usually there's one designated heir apparent, and not everybody agrees on who that ought to be. Mm-hmm. And so, and then in other families, you've got two family members that work in the business and three that don't. Mm-hmm. And um, but a lot of times in the estate plan of the founding generation, the the value of the business, some of it belongs to those non-involved in, um, family members as well. Sure. And so you end up with two siblings running a business and three siblings waiting for a dividend. Mm-hmm. And so if you've, if you've developed a written plan and mom and dad have agreed on what the roles are going to be for everybody – there's a lot less um, operation, you know, a, a lot less family disharmony caused caused by he said he said she said kind of conversation. Right, right. Yes, I see that often. So recently, I was talking to a uh, family business owner that has uh, three children in the business, uh, and uh, 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 they're planning on transitioning out in about three years. Uh, and so this whole idea of deciding on who's going to lead, uh, I've heard families uh, say we want our, to treat our children equally, and so they will all will lead. And, and, of course, we know what, what, what that w- will cause. So h- how, how do you go about selecting out of, let's say, three children, who the next leader is going to be? Is that something that the founder just says that I want uh, Jimmy to be the uh, will be the next president, or is uh, is that done through uh, what? How do you see that happening a lot of times? I see this often. Yeah, I, I've seen it. I've seen it work several different ways successfully, and and those are the ones that we want to talk about. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the first the the, the first way. Um, is, you know, the, well, the first question is how old is everybody? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're talking about 45 year old s- children, 
um, in the family business, um, by that point, they've, they've usually taken a role. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they've, they've usually been assigned a position and everyone, employees, family, and, and, and founders has seen them perform. And so it's easier if the children are, are older to know what they're capable of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the smart families, um, that I've seen tend to make clear to all of the family members what the roles and the expectations are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So there's not a question about who's performing and who's not. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second thing that I've seen that works well is if the children are younger and haven't yet established those clear roles or hierarchy by performance, um, is to is to bring in an independent person to be part of the management after the founding shareholders transfer out. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's a family friend. Sometimes it's a trusted advisor. Sometimes a formal board is created, mm-hmm. and um, and that helps with the transition because there are other independent, objective. Um, uh, business people looking at the performance of the the new owners, sure, um, and and weighing in on the next stage. So one of the things that that I a quote that I've used a lot of times in conversation that that a lot of people open their eyes wide when I say it, but that's that family owned doesn't necessarily mean family run. And so sometimes the best transition is one where operational management transitions in in the company to skilled employees mm-hmm. um, and ownership transfers to the family. Then the, 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 the members of the family that are in ownership either choose to participate in the business with that expert management that's in there already, Mm -hmm. um, or they choose to be passive investors. Mm -hmm. I hope I'm. No, I, no, I, no, I appreciate that very much, Dana. So, um, so the children who are not actively involved in the business, uh, do they, or should they have, uh, any say in to, uh, how the uh, transition uh, is going to to happen, and what are the outcomes or results of it going to be? Well, I think I think that that the the smart thing to do is to create a structure in which there is a way to solve interfamily disputes, mm-hmm. and so whether that is by creating a trust mm-hmm. and putting. Um, involved family members and non-involved family members as trustees Mm -hmm. um, with, with somebody to be a tiebreaker if the vote gets tied Mm -hmm. um, is, is very important. Mm -hmm. Um, As an example, um, one company that I worked with had two operating siblings and a trust that controlled the company was, the trustees were the three non-operating siblings. Mm-hmm. And and the effect of that was that the three non-operating siblings had to be involved in capital decisions, borrowing money, 
raising money, spending money, but they left the other two alone to run the business. Mm-hmm. But it, it created an opportunity for them to feel like the there was some stewardship of the family's asset that wasn't just the viewpoint of the day-to-day operator. Um, a, another, uh, another family, though, um, that I worked with came up with a different solution to the who's the heir apparent problem. Mm-hmm. Um, Dad didn't want to choose. And mom wouldn't let him choose. So we were engaged to sell the company without telling the kids. Mm-hmm. And the idea was, and it worked out this way, um, he gave them all a share of the consideration from the transaction sure, and said, you can work for the buyer or, or now you can go start your own thing. Right. Two of the children stayed and worked for the buyer and earned the executive power based on their performance. One of them chose to go and do his own thing. Hmm. Very good. Very good. So everybody uh, really worked out. So you talked about uh, key uh, uh, team members and uh, everything. Uh, so uh, I've seen it where where you have these key team members who have been with the founder for 25, 30 years, whatever length of time, especially for those um, who have started the company and now the second generation is taking over. But they've been there with the founder. Now the founder is is, uh, talking about retiring and leaving the business uh, and leaving it over to his children. But um, now all of those people are saying, well, uh, you know, it's been a great 25-year run. I think I'll retire too. And, of course, those are key people uh, that have been there. So tell us a little bit about what are some options as far as with this transition of maybe offering some skin in the game, some ownership to uh, those key uh, uh, members who have helped keep the uh, business successful for many years, and it also keeps uh, them from leaving the business when they're needed the most. Right. Um, well, I, I think that that the feeling that uh, among some key employees that that I've been passed over, um, I've and and now you've handed the the reins to somebody younger and, and less qualified is a an issue that's really important for the family to deal with. But I think you've pointed to another one, which is um, you, those skill sets may be critical mm-hmm. um, that some of those long term employees have. And so we've seen a number of different ways that that's done. Um, one is some some companies form uh, if they if it's a company with a, a lot of employees and a, a payroll that supports it, they form a, a an employee stock option plan, an ESOP, mm-hmm. and and let some of those senior members, um, it, you know, and, and some of those key employees become shareholders through the ESOP. Um, other groups will simply set aside a portion of ownership to use as an incentive um, for those um, for those key employees. Some people it's real equity. Some people it's synthetic equity, like a phantom stock plan mm-hmm. or a profit sharing plan. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things are ways to reward those key employees and to. 
you know, apply sort of a golden handcuff, if you will. Sure. Yeah, I think there's a misnomer uh, that uh, people have that uh, if you go to an ESOP plan, uh, that um, that 100% of the company goes uh, to the employees, and that the family members are no longer involved in the business. Could you could you maybe uh, talk about that just a little bit? Sure, and ESOP is a very complicated structure. Oh, sure, um, it, and it has, but it has. Um, value in, in a, a, a number of situations. Um, so anybody that's considering one needs to, to, to talk to an expert the same way they would talk to an expert attorney before drafting a contract. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I can say a couple of things that I think will, will speak to your question. One, um, a lot of ESOPs are minority interest in the company. Okay. And so the, the founder um, or the founder's family or whatever may, may still control the company's equity, um, but the ESOP plan um, has tax benefits for the employees um, because the, the the value that they own in the company grows um, like a retirement account. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no tax until they take it out. Um, second, you know the the there are some tax benefits for the the seller um, if the ESOP is pro- properly structured. Um, and, and therefore, um, you know, there are some attractive things to do with the ESOP, but the Mm -hmm. biggest, the biggest advantage of the ESOP, whether it's minority, majority or whatever, is that you've got those employees directly incentivized to act like owners, Mm -hmm. to under, to, to, to be focused on the long-term growth of the company. Um, but it's very easy to do an ESOP where, where, the employees that are uh, part of the ESOP are own, only own a minority interest in the company, and the family can keep its okay. uh, its share. A lot of ESOPs are twenty five or thirty percent. Okay, okay. Thanks for sharing that because I I think that sometimes people get a little confused about it. Of course, we could do a whole program on ESOPs, and maybe we can yep. do, do that later on. So so let's talk about. Uh, 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 funding a successful generational transition. I know a lot of family businesses. Uh, all of the money is is in the is in the business, so to speak. There may not be a uh, a large chunk of cash laying out here that may be available uh, to the next generation. Um, uh, the 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 parents are concerned about their retirement and uh, how that's going to happen. Uh, and how they're going to be able to to do it. So, what are some of the uh, options for funding a successful generational transition? Well, again, depending on how long we're planning, mm-hmm. um, a portion of the of the interest in the company may be transferred by stock grants, gifts over time, um, and particularly if there are multiple children um, that are going to be involved in the ownership after the transition. You might parse out some of the stock over time, um, and and but you have to take into account the tax implications sure. um, of those of those gifts. Um, another thing that's very frequent is that the owner has been used to living off of um, usually a, an owner's level of compensation, mm-hmm. um, and uh, a lot of times taking out most of the profit. Um, and so the, the owner has to be logical 
about how much cash flow um, the company really is creating. Um, because in most cases in privately held businesses, it's all being, most of it's being spent. Nobody wants to pay tax on more income than they have to. Um, and, and, and so there's a delicate balance between the ability of the company to pay future towards a seller note or an earn out, um, and, and the, the, the risk that the shareholder or the selling shareholder feels because I've turned over this asset and they haven't paid me for it yet. They're going to pay me in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is the most common that we see okay. is a seller note or an earnout kind of concept. Um, sometimes the there's an external borrowing. Um, you know, the 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 management team and the and the family members get together. They go to a lender, um, whether there's an ESOP or not, um, and they borrow money externally to buy out the shareholders. That are that are exiting, mm-hmm. uh, and when you start looking at that plan, a how was the value set? Is this a market price arm's length transaction with a price that's determined by an independent valuation, mm-hmm. uh, or was this a handshake deal between a father and son? Um, the 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 lender is going to have an opinion about that valuation. Sure. The lender is also going to have an opinion about the collateral value of the assets of the company and or whether the next generation has sufficient assets of his own, their own, to support the financing. And so a lot of times what you end up with is a combination mm-hmm. where there's some external borrowing involved and there's some earnout involved. The external borrowing that the bank gets paid off first, but mom and dad have that money to retire on. And then after that debt is settled um, or while that debt is being settled, a portion of the, the earning stream of the company is is allocated to the rest of the purchase. Sure. So thank you. Thank you. So, um, yeah, so it's a it's a complicated uh uh, pro- uh, process and, and uh, so many, uh, uh, I think, uh, families as they, they begin thinking about this, they're really daunted by it. And of course, one of the things we really feel like is is that they do need outside counsel uh, most of the time uh, to be able to to make some kind of a transition like this uh, possible. But one of the questions that I, I hear often is is I, I hear it's sort of the the parents. Uh, that the children really don't have any choice in, in this. The parents make an offer, and it's up to the kids uh, that are involved in the business and that not in the business. It's sort of a take it or leave it uh, uh, mentality. Uh, do the do what kind of uh, uh, choices uh, or what role should the children? Uh, really uh, ha- have the responsibility and the opportunity to play in a transition like this? Um, well, I, I had, uh, I, I'm a storyteller. I'll tell a quick little story. Hey, stories are the think, best, best way to do it. So go ahead. That I think communicates. There's a father and a son and, and the father brought us in and said, I, I want to retire. I want to sell the business. 
and the son has been working there for 20 years and really runs a big part of the operation. And we asked, well, what about the son? And he said, oh, he doesn't have any money. Um, he could never afford to buy me out. And um, and we talked to the son, and the son said he wouldn't even ask me. Um, so, but we knew that the son was critical, and the son had invested his life in the business too. So a smart buyer um, um, or funding partner realizes the value of that next generation, even when father and mother may not. Mm-hmm. And in that particular case, the buyer partnered with the son to buy the business. Okay. So that the son stayed involved and was incentivized to participate. In other, another situation that was very similar, the son, the father came to the son and said, I'm ready for you to buy me out and here's the price. And the son said, I've got my own career, and if you don't want to negotiate with me, I'll I'll go somewhere else. I can take my skills and go. And that caused a lot of family disharmony. But I watched the mother convince the father that that's what he would have said. <laughs> and if he was smart enough to run the business, don't you think he's smart enough to negotiate with you? Hmm. Um, and, and that's what I would say to... Uh, a, a business owner who thinks that they get should dictate the terms um, is that you know if the the younger generation is capable of running the business, do you think they they you should expect them to accept your terms without participating? I think I think not. Well, thank you for sharing that because I, I hear that quite often, and uh, uh, and it's, it is a conversation that I find that parents and children don't like to have because uh, there, there is that stress uh, uh, and um, there, there's that fear of family harmony. Well, um, I, I know that one of the questions I always ask uh, uh, people, uh, uh, and a lot of times around families, I know uh, I I. I've uh, been involved in our family businesses for for many years, and one of the times that we're always together is around the dinner table. A lot of times on Sunday evening, and sometimes there's three or four generations there. But uh, and there's all kinds of conversations that go on there. So, but uh, could you tell me a little bit? So, what what, what do, you, do you and your family talk about around the dinner table? <laughs> um, I, I think that there are. There's there are lessons in every day, and 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 so my uh, my family laughs and we talk about teaching moments. Um, Great. But one yeah. of the things that the children have learned over time is that that they're allowed to bring the teaching moment to the conversation as well. You know, the the younger generation's got a different um, approach sometimes to work life balance or to politics or to their perception about how things ought to work. And so for us, um, we want them to teach us how they think the same way that we've tried to show them by example or conversations around the dinner table. So they understand how we think (laughs) because everybody's got choices. Right. And, um, and, and the, 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 the founder generation, the parents, um, I think have an obligation to let 
the younger generation understand why they've made the choices they've made. So oh. those are the kinds of things we talk about a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. It's good. Uh, uh, I know my father used to tell me early on in my uh, uh, career was, he says, um, son, when we're together with uh, 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 a bunch of older uh, people or in business or whatever it is, it's the best thing for you to do is to listen uh, he said, because if you open your mouth, it'll be obvious how little you know. So <laughs> so any, anyway, so that good old 80-20 rule, uh, listen 80% of the time and speak 20% of the time is good. Well, um, uh, uh, this is really good, and we could talk on for a long time, and we'll, uh, we'll have you back on uh, for some future uh, segments of Family Business Today. But do you have any fa- uh, final thoughts uh, that you might like to share along this, this topic uh, that you'd like to just uh, share with family? Uh, today that uh, you think would like to leave them with? I think the most important thing is is sort of what you were alluding to about talking around the dinner table. The, the best way for this to work out is for there to be conversation about it before it's time for it to happen. Hmm. And and so that, that the family members understand what's in the founder's mind so that the founder thinks about and, and, and understands whether his retirement plan, it, it matches up to the, the ability of the business to fund it, particularly if he wants to pass along the risk now to the children. Is he giving them a fair um, approach to life? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, can it support both sets of family members? Um, those kinds of things just have to be talked through um, because what I find the most dangerous thing for family harmony is all of the information that everybody assumes everybody else knew, but they never told them. Okay. We had a, we had a family that we negotiated with dad to sell the business and it was a big business. It was a $50 million transaction and he went home and he was proud and he announced to the family on Thanksgiving that he had set up a structure to sell the business and retire. <laughs> and they all left. Wow. Because they hadn't been consulted. They didn't think he was doing the right thing. Um, the whole family split up. And he called us and said, I'm going to kill the deal because my family doesn't agree. And if he had taken the time to educate them about why he thought it was time and why he thought that was the right decision, they might have gone along with it. But as it was, they rode it into the ground, and the family lost that wealth. Wow, wow, wow. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. Uh, Our guest today on uh, Family Business Day has been uh, Dana Holmes, uh, managing partner of Second Generation Capital in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, to learn more about Second Generation Capital, visit their website at www.secondgeneration.com. That's the number two, ndgeneration.com. We hope um, that you will uh, come back and be with us again on, on a future uh, program, Dana. Thank you, Greg. I've enjoyed it. To our listeners, thank you for joining us for the Family Business Today podcast. Brought to you by the Tennessee Center for Family Business, located in Nashville, Tennessee, we are an association of family businesses who work together to grow our businesses through relationships, 
education, and successful generational transition. If you have a specific topic that you would be interested in us having a program on, send us an email to info at tncfb.com. To learn more about the Tennessee Center for Family Business, visit our website at www.tncfb.com. 